you. If you will please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John, John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible, and today we bring it to a close with 11 verses that, that challenge us very deeply. John chapter 6 is the story. It starts off with the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, that's 5,000 households, by the way. And then the through the night, leaving that side of the sea, walking across the water, scaring his disciples, and getting into the boat, and immediately coming to the place that they were heading towards. And then those 5,000 households crossed the river or crossed the lake as well, walked all around throughout the night, found Jesus the next day, and wanted to force him to make him king. And Jesus says, you are not here because of the signs. You are here because you had your fill of the loaves. You're here for natural food that perishes. Everyone knows. I don't know how many of you make uh, homemade bread ever. How long does it last without all those preservatives in it? Now, there's a reason why there's a lot of recipes for day-old bread, because day-old bread is basically a rock. That kind of thing is what Jesus is saying here, is that there is food that perishes, and if you only are here for something like that, you too will perish. It's just a natural thing that's meant to teach you of something much grander. And so the people, of, uh, the people that were crossing around and talking to Jesus, they came to him, they said, look, uh, that's, that's great and all, but Moses gave us bread that perished. Quite literally, manna, if you kept it overnight, would grow worms out of nothing, which was kind of remarkable. And how Jesus was addressing this, he says, look, you're looking for the food that perishes. They come back and say, yeah, well, Moses gave us food that perishes. Do you think you're better than Moses? And he says, not only am I better than Moses, I'm better than the bread he gave you. That was just a picture of me and a temporal one that perishes, I am the bread from heaven. Unless you eat me, my flesh, and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That, if you go to any preaching class, is the absolute worst thing to say to keep a crowd. And it bears out. 5,000 households leave him. Not only 5,000 households, but most of the disciples that had been following him around, dozens and dozens, were cut down to 12. Everyone left him that day. That's where we pick up this story. Jesus gives them one of the hardest groupings of teachings in the scriptures And he says, you have no hope in yourselves. You have no life in yourselves. Bread, though it's good to sustain you for a day, will not sustain you for eternity. It doesn't work like that. Food that perishes leads to life that perishes. One who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will never perish. It's not a simple statement, but it is as true as the word of God, because that is exactly what this is. Their response to it, I'll call your memory because it's been a couple of weeks. The response to it is found in verse 52. We'll kind of pick up the reading there. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, not only is my flesh something valuable, but truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, now he says it in the positive, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, even if you die, you will live. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks in my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, and it's not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is where we pick up today. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the Lord and his word as we read the 11 verses that we're coming to today. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve. Uh, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that John wrote this down so many years ago and that throughout history, your fallible people have maintained, copied, and preserved your word through the preservation of the Holy Spirit. We are grateful for that, that we may read it with confidence this day. Father, we pray that just as your spirit illumined or uh, inspired these words, he illumined them to us this morning. Not that we may just understand them, but Father, that we may love them. That the eternal words that come from the mouth of the Savior would delight our hearts and bring to us true food, true drink, that we may have true life that extends into eternity. Father, we pray as we have prayed so many times before, may all within the sound of these words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If Jesus was just a good man, this is the most offensive sermon he ever gives. Because he makes it all about himself. It's the sign of a bad teacher unless that teacher happens to be God. 
And this is one of the things that John continually expresses to the people here that are gathered, that those who are reading, he wants them to know that Jesus of Nazareth is not just one who is teaching about the things of God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just giving the words of the Lord. Many prophets throughout history had given the words of the Lord. Several kings throughout history were given the words of the Lord. Several rulers were given the words of the Lord. It is not that he has the words of the Lord. It is that he is the word of the Lord. His very existence, his very nature, his very role is tied up in being the expression of God. And so when he comes to this group of people that are looking for things that tickle the ear, or when he's coming to a group of people that are looking just for natural bread, and when he's coming to a people that are just looking to have a king who provides for them free mystical bread, he abandons them. And he says, no, I will not be a king to you. Look back in chapter 6, look further on back. The next day when the whole crowd came to him, uh, yeah, I don't want to read too much of this because it's a long passage. Oh, See, this is what happens when you do something, uh, take a little rabbit trail somewhere. You study in one Bible, and it has all the words laid out in one way, and you have that picture in your mind, then you come here, and then it's a different layout. Hang on a second. Okay, there it is. I'm sorry. It's in verse 15. All of the people were wanting to take him after he fed the 5,000 households with bread. They were wanting to come and take him by force and make him king. That's a remarkable statement about the intention of the people at the time because they saw free bread. They saw free things. That's what we want from our rulers, right? He says, perceiving, in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The next day, that whole crowd chased him around to the other side and he challenges them. He says, the only reason you are following me is because it benefits you. That is not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to spell that out this morning because that is rampant in the churches today as well. Those who follow Jesus because it benefits them and nothing more. But that is not how the scriptures lay out the words of eternal life. Jesus, as you recognize, is not saying, if you follow me, all of your problems will be solved. He's not coming and saying, if you follow me, your, your sicknesses will go away, or you won't starve, or you'll always have bread, or something like this. No. He says, to follow me, those who follow me, those who consume my flesh and drink my blood, those who have my body and my blood on their account, that is righteousness, that is forgiveness of sins, though he die, he will live. It is not about solving our problems here. Following the Lord may indeed solve some of the problems here because the Lord made this world to work in certain ways. But that wisdom dies with us. And what he is expressing here is he's saying, not only is this an offensive thing to say, go back to verse 60. When many of the disciples heard this teaching, these are people that have been walking with Jesus and watching him do miracles. Watching the signs, whether in the wedding at Cana or in the the healings of different people 
or in the multiplying of bread or in the walking across the sea on top of water. Declaring himself, showing himself to be creator of heavens and earth. Both of the blessings of the Lord as well as the tempestuous sea. These disciples who had heard it said, this is hard language. It is hard language to say, whoever feeds on the Son of Man will live forever. But Jesus, demonstrating himself to have a divine knowledge of things, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, does this offend you? Do you take offense at this? And he doubles down. If you take offense at this, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You say, well, what, what would be offensive about that? Right? They're his disciples. Wouldn't they go, my goodness, we're following the Son of Man. He goes in the glories of heaven. What, what a remarkable thing to be lifted up to. What would be offensive about that? It's because on the way to being lifted up to heaven, he is lifted up onto the cross in the most unexpected way, saving his people. If they are offended that he is the bread from heaven, they're going to be offended that he, Lord of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, would subsume himself to be put to death, the death of a thief. If you're going to be offended at Christ as meeting all your needs in ways that you can't provide, then you will be even more offended to find him putting his own glory aside to benefit his people. It is upside down of rulers. Kings are defended by their subjects. They don't lay down their life for their subjects. That's not the way of this world. To the ancient mind, that would be a failure of that kingdom. If the king dies, what's the point? You're supposed to surround your king. You're supposed to protect him. Look at the way that Peter did it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Takes out a sword, cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. What does Jesus do? One of the most untalked about miracles that he ever does. What does he do? He takes the ear up from the ground, places it back on his head. Looks to his disciple, Peter, and says, if you live by the sword, that's how you're going to die. Don't defend the kingdom of God with stuff from the kingdoms of this earth. Those deceitful schemes, those myriad of ways that we aim to accomplish the work of God, will it offend us to say that we can't actually do that? Yes, it will, and so should it. Our ways are not acceptable. And Jesus not only doubles down, he triples down here. He says, if you're going to be offended that I am the food that came out of heaven, you will be offended by the manner of which I am risen up. More than that, find your offense deeply in verse 63. It is the Spirit, capital S, who gives life. The flesh is of no help, not even a little. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to the ears of fallen people and does not tell them that if they try really hard, the good news is that you can have life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not a set of rules that if you follow them, then you will find your righteousness and you will find life. 
The gospel is Christ has accomplished salvation on your behalf. Believe on him and you will live. Look at the title of this series. There's a reason I have it up there. It's because John says in John chapter 20, verse 31, this is the only reason why I write this gospel, so that you get that message drilled deep into your mind, that you may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and by believing, you may have life in his name. You, hearers and readers of the gospel of John, me, preacher and reader of the gospel of John, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to eat the bread that lives forever. Even though he died, he rose again. Even though we die, we rise again. We follow our king, and our king takes paths we don't expect. King, paths that the flesh wants nothing of. We don't enjoy death, do we? Every one of us, within a hundred years' time, is going to face that. It's not an enjoyable thing to consider. It's not an enjoyable thing to experience. It brings a separation that's unnatural to us, and we hate it. But to realize that the flesh is overwhelmed with the Spirit, and the reality that the flesh is actually laid aside, and the Spirit of God raises us to newness of life again, that resurrection is the hope of the Christian to say, as Christ is, so I too will one day be. Where he lives, that is where I will too reside. And Jesus says to us, if you are trying to accomplish this, if you are trying to get there on your own steam, on your own flesh, on your own power, it will never, ever do. Even if it is magical bread, it won't do. Even if you ate food that was miraculously provided to you from heaven every single day, do you know what we in our natural state would eventually do? Exactly what the people of Israel did with magical bread every morning. We grow tired of this bread. We remember the melons in Egypt. We don't want to eat the food that lives. My friends, to the church, God has not only provided us the bread from heaven, but he has also provided for us the word of God itself, that we may eat it, consume it, and it nourish us and change us And so we focus on the word of God, not because it is expedient, but because it is the only repository of eternal words. Why is it we are here? Because we hear Christ saying things of eternity, things that our advice and our counsel cannot give to each other. If I come to your life and I say, hey, here's a way that you can improve your life, that may work for you for half a year, a year, two years, five years, but they're not the words of eternal life. This is exactly the issue that we're coming down to the people here saying, we've never heard anyone speak like this. No human has ever taught like this. The words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth were not just different in, in luster, they were different in kind completely. He was not speaking to them about how they can fix their life and what they can do better. What they were instead hearing was, you can't do it. 
Your flesh is worthless for these things. You're trying to accomplish eternal things with temporal abilities. Let me give it to us in plain language. You are trying to please God in your own abilities. It can't be done. And Jesus is laying this out for them, saying, the Spirit is the one who is the life giver, not you, not me, not us together. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help whatsoever. The words that I have spoken, Jesus says to you, are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And John commentates here, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You want to hear the offensive part of the gospel? You can't even want it, Jesus says, unless the Father is drawing you. That should be a very, very comforting statement to a Christian. Do you want to follow the Lord on his terms, no matter what it takes? Then God has chased you down and pursued you. Do you hear that? Do you want to follow the Lord on his terms, not on yours? Even if it doesn't make your life better. Even if it actually makes more suffering come into your life. Because, saints, we are promised such things. What if everything fails? What if you lose friend and family and mother and father and brother and sister and yes, even your own life for pursuing the bread that lives and the words that live unto eternal life? No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The response of not only the crowds, but of all these disciples who have been following him is to leave. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turned to the 12 that were left and said, do you want to go away as well? The message won't change. The words won't change. The promise of eternal life won't change. The gospel won't change simply because we find it offensive or annoying. What does he say to them? Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter, as usually has a foot-shaped mouth and can't help himself from speaking foolishness, here says one of the most amazing things. Not only is he the first person to actually recognize the identity of the Messiah and actually call him as he is, that happens in the book of Mark, but here he recognizes a specific aspect of who he is. Simon Peter answered in verse 68 and says, Lord, that's really important too, by the way, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is a remarkable statement because the Holy One of God is the one who executes judgment on the people that have turned away from him. In other words, 
He is saying to him, Lord, you have all the words of eternal life. There's nobody else for us to go to. We've cast all of our lot into you. You are the one we are trusting in. And you have every right to judge those who would not trust in you. That is a remarkable statement for him to say after a sermon like that. Because what Jesus had been expressing to them is, you have nothing to offer. You have nothing that you can actually bring to this transaction How many times do we know about this, even in our own life? How much do we contribute to the Christian salvation that has been worked in our hearts? Our sin. That was our contribution. Way to go. And that was the most we could contribute. How much righteousness? You say, well, I had some, some good stuff in my life yet, right? I did some good things. I, I did some, some good acts. I, I helped somebody do this and somebody do that, and God was happy with that. But yeah, I do need him to handle all the sin. No, my friends, the prophets make very clear to us that even our righteousnesses are unacceptable and unholy. Not because they weren't good works, but because they didn't come from God. The flesh is of no help. He actually says it doubly, no help, not at all. It is the Spirit, capital S, not your inner spirit, the Holy Spirit who brings life. For those of you who are in our uh, Bible study on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on the Holy Spirit, you recognize that this is a trend throughout all of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit, whenever he shows up, brings life. And when he intentionally pulls back his involvement, people die. It is, it is the, the transition that happens throughout Scripture all the way going back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. That when the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters, he brought forth a living world out of it. Here, the Spirit does the same thing with our helpless corpses. If you don't see that that's what he's saying, then you won't understand why 20,000 people left him. All they were looking for was bread, and he was just giving them eternal life. And they would rather the bread. Let that sink in for a second. They would rather the bread. Peter learns throughout all of this that Jesus, the one whom he followed for reasons he didn't fully understand is the source of eternal words. He's not just speaking eternal words. They're emanating from him. You are the Holy One of God. Not only do you save, you judge. Not only do you have every right to judge, you also have every right to save. And it's a remarkable thing for him to be standing there saying this. And Jesus answered them and says, don't even put in your own mind that you didn't leave because of something good in you. Look at the very response Jesus gives. He doesn't go, way to go, Peter. That's a first. Finally, you figured something out. No, he actually looks at them. and Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them and says, did I not choose you, the 12? You didn't stay faithful to me because your flesh was helpful. Don't you forget either. The flesh is of no help at all. The only reason, Peter, that you see this and know it is because the Holy Spirit of God showed it to you. The same thing as when Peter identified Jesus, 
the first one who actually ever identified him as the Son of God, what did Jesus answer them? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus answers them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? What? Jesus' calling is so powerful that it actually keeps Judas Iscariot faithful in the meantime so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, well, I mean, this is no way to write a gospel, John. You're giving away the ending. Was going to betray him. But it's so important to point out at this time because what Jesus is saying is not only do you not have any ability in yourself, the Spirit of God and me, the Word of God, are so powerful as to keep an unbelieving disciple faithful in order that he might betray me, in order that I might be lifted up in a way that all of you will abandon me on the night that that happens, so that I may save my people from their sins. You want to see how weak our flesh is, look at those who had a front row seat and the best shot at following Christ. The night that he was betrayed, not only had they just sat down at communion with him, but later on, when they were trying to pray for him, couldn't even stay awake. And when they were finally shook awake by the incoming temple guards coming to arrest Jesus, every single one of them abandoned him. How many of his disciples were crucified next to him? Zero. Two thieves. Two thieves that depict the two responses of how God brings both the Holy One of Israel in judgment and Lord King. Two thieves that met their end that day. Two different destinations. Why? One, God was saving. The other, God was judging. You say, well, I I don't know that I like that. I don't know if that's a real comfortable thing about this. It's not comfortable at all. Because it doesn't elevate mankind to any level where he says, the only reason I follow Christ is because I have found him to be acceptable. No, it's not. The only reason anybody actually follows Christ is because God chased them down. That should bring such a spirit of joy to the Christian's heart, knowing that there is absolutely nothing you could have done to save yourself. And that God, before the world began, found you, not for any good you had done, but in his grace to save you, to send his son to atone for your sins and to raise you to life that you may face the same death anyone else does and yet know that when I lay my head down, my faithful God will take my committed soul into his care. I will entrust myself to him and he will raise me up on the last day. Jesus walks this path before us. This isn't a matter of God calling us to do something he doesn't do. Look what Jesus does. 
I'll follow John's example and give away the end of the story. Jesus goes to Jerusalem when he knows it's going to threaten his life. And he finds there a welcome committee that then puts him to death before the week's over. He is betrayed by those closest to him. He is beaten within an inch of his life. He is put to death in one of the cruelest torments possible with his shame on display before the entire nation. Crucified with thieves and he cannot help but to enact the salvation and the justice of God there. There where the wrath of God and the mercy of God meet on that cross. Christ lays down his own life. And then, my friends, he picks it up again. He promises this ahead of time. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay down my life. Why? Because I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to pick it up again. If you read the crucifixion, he was not killed by the nails. He gave up his spirit. He laid down his life for his sheep. That's what the good shepherd does. And he picks up his life for his sheep. That's what the good shepherd does. And when the sheep lay down their lives, he picks them up as well. Losing none of them. He is the chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd is enamored with the words of eternal life. And this is how he draws his sheep to his fold. Simon Peter couldn't respond with anything other than mesmerizing appreciation for what the words of eternal life were saying. We have believed, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus enacts in them the humility that is endemic to the people who follow the Lord. And that is, we do not desire you to be our earthly king. We do not desire it to be done in heaven as it's done on earth. We desire it to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the difference? We don't want Jesus to be our our earthly ruler in the same way we have kings and presidents. No, what we want is that we subsume ourselves and submit ourselves to the rulership of heaven today and now. These are the words of eternal life, he says. Do we not pray this in the Lord's Prayer? Did we not pray it this morning? Our Father, who art in heaven... Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. We don't want it the other way. That's what all of them were looking for. That's what mankind wants. Make our existence on earth extend into heaven. We want you to serve us. No, that's not the structure of it. We want earth to look like heaven. We don't want heaven to look like earth. We want the Lord's will to be done here as it already is in heaven. 
God rules heaven as both Lord and judge, right? The same thing that Peter points out here, Lord and the Holy One. We want the same thing here on earth as it is in heaven. And we will use the words of the Lord to bring that about. There are a lot of false teachings going around the church these days. One of the most pervasive ones is the idea that your words have creative power. That you can speak things into existence. The power of positive thinking, of words, and of these things. This is dangerous stuff. Because your words do not have power. It is Christ's words that have power. Christ's words that bring life. Christ desires what he aims for. Not what we aim for, not what we want. There are many televangelists that teach this kind of stuff. Avoid them. Beware. Because the reality is, if we desire to determine things, let me back that up and make it a little bit more clear. What would happen if you got everything you ever wanted? What would happen if you got everything you ever wanted? Can you think about a worse wish to anybody? Imagine if you had a genie, right? Those old stories. And you could wish for anything. And the answer is always yes. What would your life look like? It would be horrible, wouldn't it? What would relationships matter? They wouldn't. What would hard work matter? It wouldn't. What kind of sufferings would come your way that make you a better person? They wouldn't. You'd wish them away. You would take a path that you weren't designed or created to take. And your unknown evils would determine outcomes you can't possibly imagine. This is one of the reasons I'm very grateful God does not answer yes to every prayer. You better hope your words cannot create the future. You better hope you can't direct these things. This is what Jesus is expressing here. He has the words of eternal life. He is God, not us. We don't have that spark of divine in us that makes us want the things that God wants at all points in every way. We see through a glass dimly. We want so many things, some that are consistent with the Spirit of God, some that are not. Don't you know it? We want some things that are good, and we want some things that are wrong. I best hope that we don't always get what we want. And here what Jesus is saying is, the words of eternal life, the words of the gospel, are not going to match with what we naturally want at all points. Who doesn't want to be saved and live eternal? It seems like the easiest message to sell. It is if you leave out the hard parts. And this is what so many try to do, which is try to share the gospel without giving the realities of this. Yes, Jesus may indeed, when he comes into your life, make certain things better. But the problem is that Jesus also said, follow me and you best count the cost of following me because it may cost you absolutely everything. It may be something that leads to great suffering and it will still be worth it, but you need to know that. I'll never forget when somebody came to me and they said they wanted to become a Christian. I said, great, 
marvelous. Do you know what that means? Do you know how difficult of a road that is? Do you know what you're signing up for? Let me give you a flash of what it could be. At the end of that, they looked at me and said, I still want it with everything that I am. I said, good. I can help you with that. And don't you know, this person walked a very, very difficult path with the Lord that led to her own death. And she sang his praise all the way. Why? I didn't sell her on something simple. I just told her what the gospel was. And the difficulties that could come your way, especially in the situation they were in. Do not follow Christ because it makes your life better. Follow Christ because the life he offers is better. Follow Christ because he is Lord and the Holy One. Follow Christ because in following him, he will be your priest rather than your judge. I promise you, you don't want that second one enacted. The flesh may look for another teacher or another message, but Peter says the same thing that we should all say as we look around Where else should we go and what other words can we depend upon? You, Christ, have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a massive transition point in the Gospel of John that sets the readers up to realize that in their own lives they must come to the same conclusion. Come to believe and to know that he is the Holy One of Israel, that he is Lord I hope all of us have found that. And if you are a Christian today, then thank the Lord this day for verse 70. That he chose us and he found us and pursued us to the ends of the world that he might make us one new people that are called by his name. Let's thank him for that now. Our Father, we are grateful that you have not left us to our own devices, for your word expresses to us in our fallen state. We would not desire you for anything. We would only muster up the strength to maybe ask you for some free things, maybe some bread, maybe some good teaching that makes us happy or solves our problems for us. But Father, in you we have found a Savior so rich and so deep all the fullness of God had dwelt in bodily form. We desire Christ to be central in our hearts, to have the preeminence in our gathering. Father, we desire above all things that your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this with all that we are. We pray it not by flesh, 
not by strength or power, but only by your spirit. We pray in your son's name.